some youth pastor somewhere this week is going to ask all of their kids, you know, what are the sandworms in your life? <laughs> Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 93. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about the new Dune movie, part one as it's been labeled with part two just recently announced for 2023, directed by Denny Villeneuve. If you're not familiar with the Dune universe, just want to let you know that there's going to be some spoilers in this episode. We're going to talk about the different adaptations of Frank Herbert's 1965 novel, and we'll be digging into everything about this new film that we appreciate and some of the themes that we want to discuss. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Brandon Hurlbert, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Chris Song, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. And joining us for this conversation, we have Matthew Brake, who is the series editor of the Theology and Pop Culture series published by Fortress and Lexington. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. So really excited to have this conversation. Just want to kick it off with, what did you guys think about this uh, Denis Villeneuve adaptation? I think having seen the David Lynch version a few years ago, which, you know, is uh, weird and surrealist and uh which he disavowed and so they have the director is alex is it alex smithy the right. director name they put on films directors disavow you know which which i think does some interesting things with the space travel stuff in dune but like overall it is kind of trippy to watch so i felt like this uh had more mainstream appeal and i i enjoyed it for the most part it gets a little bogged down in sci-fi speak but i, I enjoyed it for the most part it, it's a lot more easier to follow. If you're not familiar with the David Lynch version of Dune, I mean, Lynch is kind of hard to understand uh, in general. His filmography is pretty wild and, and weird like that, but in a more convoluted way, because we're, I think, supposed to understand Dune a lot better than we end up when we watch it, I think. I, that was something that stood out to me is that this film was a lot more intelligible. It was clear what the political stakes were and, and what everybody's gunning for, but but I would I would also say I was surprised by the amount of exposition in this film. I, that was one of the things that I didn't like about the David Lynch film was all of the, I would say, excessive exposition. And so when it opened with Zendaya's character, you know, giving exposition, I was like, oh, no, are we going to have this all over again? I, I think it did a, a good job on the whole, but it did stand out to me that there was still, a, I guess you kind of have to have a lot of exposition for a, a, a story like this. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Um, I I was wondering for folks who don't read the novel, um, how much of of the context and how much of sort of the intrigue they're able to to garner. Um, there is, you know, there is what Zendaya says at, at front. There is some explanation as we go, but I mean, you know, Villeneuve's movie, the the recent Dune is is sort of this new genre of art house blockbuster, right? So it's um, it's as if like, I mean, I imagine something close to if like Terrence Malick did Superman, 
you would get something gorgeous, but you'd also get kind of a Spartan dialogue. And so things can be expressed with a lot more, I guess, to use the phrase surplus of meaning. There's, there's a lot that's, that's more said than, than what is simply just spoken. So, um, you know, like, like I said, I, I wonder when Leto Atreides says, I should have married you, like, um, you know, people who read the novel, they're like, oh, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. But for other people, it's like, what's going on with this relationship? Yeah, and uh, so I, I watched it with my wife, who has, it was her first introduction to the Gene universe, after which we watched the uh, David Lynch <laughs> Um, a bit of the David Lynch movie, which is just completely confusing anyway. But um, the entire framing of the 2021 movie is such that it embeds the exposition within the exploration that Paul does of this new world, uh, which I think is it, it's, a, it's a very clever tactic in terms of your learning as well as uh, at the same time as Paul's learning. But it's that's the interesting part about the book as well is that the book launches you straight into the to the world of of the Atreides. I mean, it opens uh, with Paul uh, waking up in his room on on Caladan from memory, and um, he's learning about this new world, Arrakis. And so, I think it's actually doing doing a far better homage to the book. But the problem is that the book is so good at telling you what everyone's thinking. It introduces you to the to the world inside their their characters but the um the movie just can't do that uh the the little flicks of hand signals and battle language and things like that uh give you some insight to what's going on uh but not the same degree of uh exposition of internal motive uh which is one thing in this uh early part of the book uh where you've got to set up things like, you know, why is spice important? Even to the point that we we don't even see, do we see space navigators? Uh, there's a there's a question. I, I I don't think we do. Other people have said we do, um, but there's all of these bits which are said but not seen, or seen but not said, uh, and yet the entire movie is set around that entire premise that there are things which are said of Paul but aren't seen at this point, or there are things that are seen of Paul, which aren't said at this point. Um, and so there's that uh, engaging of the gray area that we might have around his prophecy and his prescience and his engagement in that. And of course, the different medium that a film is, you can't get a lot of that sort of internal motivation. But David Lynch tried to get around that by giving us all this internal monologue. But of course, that's one of the most cringy and kind of like difficult things to get through with watching the David Lynch film was all that internal monologue. And you sort of see in that film the struggle of like trying to make one medium map onto another. And he also gave us pugs and heart plugs. Which, I mean, I don't think this is a spoiler at all in that I'm very glad that they aren't in this new film. Well, we were talking with Murray Stiller, you know, about horror films. And one of the things when he was given that kind of history of, of horror films and the, the how it taps into the zeitgeist as it goes through decade to decade. In the 80s, you have this like strong concern about AIDS. And so you get that body horror with Baron Hark Harkonnen and just that gross profusion of blood and you just think about like the AIDS epidemic and the concern for about AIDS in the 80s it's like right on point with the zeitgeist as someone who um I only recently read uh the first book and I, I listened to it on audio book and I would not recommend listening on audiobook because though it's a it's a good production 
in between each chapter, which obviously if you're just, you know, doing dishes or walking somewhere, you don't actually understand when the chapters are breaking, but there's, you know, little, <clears throat> little limericks or little, uh, you know, prophecies from uh, the Bene Gesserit and, uh, you know, the Prince's Irlan or something. And it's very confusing. And so I found that watching the film, that, and, I, and I also haven't seen uh, David Lynch film or the little mini series that, that also came out um, in early 2000, because I haven't really seen anything. I, this movie made so much sense. I was like, oh, this is what I read. And I like, and when, when things were about to happen, I'm like, oh, yes, I do remember a betrayal. I don't remember exactly what happened, but this is, this seems nice. I understand what's happening. And I think the book, if, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of things that happen in the book, um, you know, battle scenes or just kind of plot points that are narrated in a really sparse way, which if you translate it to film, you actually have to show that they're traveling somewhere or that they're having this big fight scene or, you know, they you have to show a bit more. Uh, than what the book does. So I actually found that really helpful um, for, you know, kind of giving images to what was only, uh, you know, written. And I, I actually really found it uh, a pretty compelling movie. Yeah, I think going back to that issue of exposition, I think to some extent it was unavoidable just because of how dense Dune is and because the, the mythology is so complex that like some exposition is expected um, and there are times where you can definitely, I don't want to say it, it wasn't so much that made me cringe, but it was on the way to cringe where I was like, okay, that's, that's a lot of exposition, but I feel like they did a good job putting the exposition they needed in. I do think it helped having seen the David Lynch film. I think Brandon, as you were pointing out, like you read the book before, but surely watching the movie, having read the book. Um, or listen to the book does kind of help you like match those story beats. And I felt the same way about the Lynch movie. Like I was better able to match what was happening. Like again, like you said, I knew the betrayal was coming and I understood the politics of it a little bit more uh, from having gone through a different version of it. So I don't know if I would have been able to follow it as well if I hadn't had that additional background. Yeah. I think when you read the book, you know, you're just introduced to so much. I don't really, I, I, at least in my listening, reading experience of it, I found that I was just completely lost for most of it. Um, maybe that's just my, my listening to audiobooks habits. Um, but yeah, I found that, you know, it's really hard to keep track of all these names that are floating around. And then you get names like, like Paul or Duncan Idaho. Like, what the heck? Why? You, you've come up with so many wonderful names, so many, you know, interesting mythologies, and you've settled on your main characters. His name's Paul. I think that's a bit silly in my mind. I don't know what you uh, what you guys think of that. I find it really interesting that the so Duncan Idaho especially, it's it's seen in uh, what nineteen yeah nineteen sixties when uh, Herbert wrote the book. That was a really exotic name for um, because it's it's mixing this Scottish thing with some Midwestern location, which kind of gives you know like. Duncan Idaho, this sort of air of mystique as this uh, traveler who has a bit of cowboy in him as well as yeah. the the person. But bizarrely, Duncan Idaho is the one character that exists across every single June novel because he gets resurrected. So spoiler, Duncan Idaho. Spoiler. Is, <laughs> spoiler alert. Uh, you know, it, 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 it doesn't matter for, for this movie. 
But well, uh, the, the spoiler alert is the the fact that um, it, even though uh, Dune deals with issues of the Messiah and 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 prophetic and and future seeing and things like that, the ultimate resurrection figure, the the figure that sort of acts as the I was going to say the linchpin, but can we talk about linchpins when we're talking about June? Um, the 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 figure that acts as the the conduit through which every single book engages is actually Duncan Idaho in a very bizarre twist. I think what's what the one spoiler that you know it would be alarming to most people is the fact that Jason Momoa plays Duncan Idaho, and halfway through the film he shaves. What was that about? He shaved, and he was just so. I was I was really torn up about that. Yeah, that actually threw me in the, in the, in the middle of the movie. It threw me. It, there's that scene where um, he comes back from the sieges and he's still got the big shaggy beard. He looks like um, Aquaman. And then suddenly they're in the barracks and he's showing the toys off. And like there he is clean shaven. I'm like, who 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 is this guy? <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen him in anything without a beard. But one of the things that the uh, characterization really um, highlights for me is that the entire story of the original Dune is all about um, the tensions inherent within colonization. Um, and, and actually that, that shift from, of Duncan Idaho from being uh, shaggy with a beard and you know, looking like the Fremen in the desert to coming back and shaving and, you know, being in dress uniform and things like that, he suddenly looks like uh, a Atreides warrior again, and it's this it's this cultural shift that occurs to to come. Uh, he's acclimatized to the culture, uh, with, although bizarrely, in the very first time you see Duncan Idaho, where he's coming off his ship, uh, which you see in the trailer, uh, he does have that beard, but that really links him to the Fremen culture. And it does so without the spitting scene in the, in the book where he declares his allegiance. He has dual allegiances to Atreides and the Fremen. Um, whereas in the film, it says all of that with a beard. Um, and I think that's one of the really interesting things about the representation in this film. But it's also, one of the, I think, one of the most disturbing uh, things about the representation in this film is that so much is left unsaid and is just up to the interpretation of the audience. I know, Chris, uh, you had some stuff to say about the uh, character, some of the characterizations in there. Yeah, well, I like, and I, I'm really curious on your thoughts. The the fact that Dr. Yue, for instance, speaks Mandarin. Obviously, English is you know sort of just the assumed language that um, that they're going to speak in, but the Harkonnens. They have their own language that's obviously, um, you know, a you know, a, a made-up language that's bizarre and otherworldly. Um, but Doctor Yue speaks Chi Mandarin Chinese, um, in which Paul responds in Mandarin, and it's the only other language that's an actual language that sort of gets pulled into the movie. And I'm not sure yet if, because um, I know that the actor uh, Chang Chen was fully on board. Um, I understand that um, they talked about what kind of language it, it's, you know, Chris, uh, Chris Porter and I, you know, we were going back and forth a little bit about the fact that the, the novel uh, uh, obviously, you know, gestures towards Dr. Bue being sort of an Asian character. 
I particularly liked full disclosure. I'm I I I have this really dear place in my heart to the David Lynch Dune. Um, um, you know, we've on the podcast before we talk about Lynch and Twin Peaks and. Um, I not because it's a great film. I think it's because it's spectacularly bad. <laughs> but the Lynch version of Doctor Ua is played by uh, I think Dean Sto- Dean Stockard is it? Um, who I thought did a great uh, great job and 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 he he played the role Easternish without uh, being yellow face. Um, and Lynch does sort of create an otherworldliness to not just Ua but um, to the other characters as well. well. And it's a move that, um, that the 2021 Dune, I think, really shies away from being otherworldly. They're, they're tapping into cultural tropes and cultural themes that we would be comfortable with. So Dr. Yue is Chinese. You know, we've got sort of House Atreides with spat, you know, Scottish bagpipes um, that give us a certain feeling already that we're sort of already attuned to. Um, the Fremen, the desert people, they, they have sort of this muezzin uh, kind of desert call that, that also maps them in, in tones that seem to be really familiar. And uh, that to me is, is a choice that I think maybe he's using out of convenience or maybe he's using it um, purposefully to, to sort of map our, our sort of political, political conflicts directly onto the subject matter. But, you know, that's just, uh, that's just sort of opening it up. I think you bring up a good point with the lack of otherworldliness. This is actually one area of probably the only area of David Lynch's Dune I really liked uh, was how they depicted space travel as something really trippy really otherworldly i mean because you know if spice is essential for space travel like we've seen it it's sort of psych it's it has that sort of psychedelic quality um so that was one thing that i think was missing from the movie that i think actually lynch does sort of well for his time is to pick the psychedelia of space travel um in terms of how the spice is used uh but i i i, I but I don't want. I just want to say that as an aside, and don't want to take away too much from the issue of how this movie is is um, linked to our current cultural situation. Um, but it is something that I do think you bring up the otherworldliness. That is something that I feel like it's really exemplified in space travel that Lynch does well. That's also missing here. Yeah, I, I think the that lack of other otherworldliness really does anchor it. To to think about the space travel, I mean, even the minimal scene in the book. Uh, that is them being loaded onto the the navigators' um, ships and not being allowed to have any contact with anything else outside of their own vessels, and then being unloaded at um, at Arrakis like cargo uh, is it's so minimal in the in the first book uh, that the otherworldliness of of the book is actually quite diminished. I think um, I reread it the other day and. Um, the the constant emphasis on water in the book just parallels this, and and especially at the moment where we have uh, oil supposed oil shortages, um, that you know the, this emphasis on water in Arrakis being the equivalent of oil uh, in 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 our universe and in our world, uh, it 
I don't think the book really shies away from making direct colonial um, comparisons, but the movie I think takes it further. Um, Harkonnen or all of the Harkonnens in general have that sort of Russian Scandinavian vibe to them. Uh, the Sadaka are em- employing Mongolian uh, throat singing and in their chant and Mongolian throat talking, I guess, <laughs> some sort of you know throat talking in, in the way that they communicate. Um, and I think it really anchors it within what we experience and what we expect as people in our universe. And, and I must say, this is the same thing that really um, struck me about 2049 as well, is that 2049, uh, while the original uh, Blade Runner managed to convey this crazy universe of um, replicants and uh, things that were completely otherworldly, uh, the 2049 universe was very anchored within what we would experience in downtown New York. I mean, the 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 idea of a massive uh, hologram addressing someone isn't too far from Times Square. Uh, it it is within the grasp of our imagination, um, and it, and and also within the grasp of our reality. And so I think that that we have the same thing uh, within this June, uh, and that that Denis Villeneuve really likes to do that. He really likes to, to, to draw that out from people. So I did, when I walked out, I was with some friends and we talked about uh, sort of, and this will lead in, we'll talk about this later with the Messiah stuff, I'm sure. You know, there's this reference to Paul Atreides, there's this messianic language used, but it's messianic language from multiple cultures, including Islam, where he's called the Mahdi. And so there's definitely a sense of, I, I want to say appropriation, maybe some Orientalism too, like using this, you know, exot, exotic, you know, Middle Eastern, uh, Asian, you know, whatever uh, ideas uh, within there. You know, I, I was thinking about the time Her- Herbert writes this, right? It's, it's the 60s. He's living during a time where, you know, we have the Beatles introducing uh, certain Eastern ideas. We have Alan Watts creating this sort of like Western Eastern thought, right? And so there's this uh, tendency towards exoticizing the non-West, right? And so there are these Orientalist aspects in there. Uh, you can definitely, I'm, I'm sure uh, someone should write an essay at some point on Edward Said and Dune, because I'm sure there would be a fun exploration to go through there where, you know, as Herbert probably being involved in that sort of world of psychedelia, sci-fi, fantasy, the West is, you know, incorporating these ideas into its pop culture in ways that are still a bit naive about what cultures in the so-called East are like, and, and, but using them as sort of pop culture fodder to exoticize the mythology. Um, so I, I think you see some of that there, that happening in Dune. Yeah, no, I'll I'll respond to that. I mean, I think this is touching on a little bit of my discomfort with uh, UA's Mandarin as actual Mandarin, um, because there's almost this unspoken cipher that, um, because and again, spoiler alert, spoiler alert that UA is the uh, he's the treacherous one, he's the traitor, that um, that him um, him being so 
so um, openly located as Chinese, um, as if that might that that association might be a natural one or one that might um, that doesn't you know need further elaboration. Obviously, that's not a suggestion, but that's still somewhat some something somewhere in the background. I just you know there's you know the Harkonnens don't speak Russian. You know there's no other there's no other sort of obvious. Uh, link that gets drawn, and so it's just it's just the the specificity of it that I think I was a little I was a something there was a radar that went off that I'm still not sure what to think about it. It kind of reminds me of Jesus Christ Superstar and how the one black character is Judas, and he's phenomenal in the film. I mean, I, you know, in the film version yeah. of the musical, he's phenomenal. But it 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 does stand out that like yeah. the one black character is like the quote unquote bad guy. And I know in Jesus Christ Superstar, Judas is as a character is kind of vindicated in in some ways. But that point was actually on my mind too. I was thinking about UA being the like quote unquote bad guy or the betrayer and thinking it, it did it did feel weird to me when I watched it. It's interesting in the book the the introduction from Princess Erlan um actually gives the uh, sort of quasi-historical insight into UA as the traitor. Um, and he's referred to quite often as the traitor. And you notice that with the Harkonnens, the Harkonnens refer to him as uh, only as the traitor. They don't use his name whatsoever. There are other um, sort of Orientalist uh, engagements. So, um, so Lisan al-Gaib is direct from Arabic. Um, so it's the, the hidden tongue or the unseen tongue the Muadib is again a direct Arabic. The Kwisatz Haderach is Hebrew, but none of those are dialogue; they are titles. And so, I, I, I see where you're coming from, Chris. I, the I, I perhaps it's because I don't. I'm not a Mandarin speaker. I didn't actually recognize it as Mandarin, and and it'd be interesting to know um, whether or not the majority of the audience would recognize that as actual Mandarin or thinking it is a sort of a faux Mandarin spoken as subtitled. Yeah. You know, that's actually, um, I'm, I'm not a Mandarin speaker either. Uh, uh, so not to pass myself off as one, but that's, that's one of the, in the experiences of streaming it rather than seeing in the theater is that it actually says in the subtitle speaking Mandarin. That, oh, that's weird uh, because you, my subtitles didn't say that at all. No, is that right? Okay. Yeah, but they, my subtitles just had the same as you know the the battle language or the the hand signals uh, huh. subtitles. No sort of closed captioning, I guess. No, that's interesting. I really appreciate that perspective, Chris. Because I didn't I didn't really think about these these issues, and and I think having read a bit more about the kind of sign language that obviously it's not real sign language, but how it's portrayed in the film is that it you know they're speaking, they're communicating to one another through sign language and then we have other kind of languages being spoken so i i took it that it was aiming for diversity and it was trying to showcase diversity rather than something else but maybe but i but obviously things you know might not land that way or might not be received that way but i took it more in in the sense of that they're trying for diversity um but i think as you rightly point out like but that's the only one so it kind of feels a bit token um in the film right yeah and i i mean just to be clear i'm not making the point that you know you, you know because ua is the traitor and like making drawing a direct line but it is the the decisions that get made that 
that's the only other language from from our world that gets brought into that world. Um, it's leaning on something. It's it's leaning on certain certain things that, in some ways, still serve the purpose of the story. It just happens, perhaps regrettably, to be um, that the character stands for that kind of betrayal. I, I find it interesting that um, some people in the deaf community have said similar things about the scene uh, in the orthodopter, because you ha- you have the comment that the one with the scar is deaf. And, and perhaps this comes back to uh, what, what you're saying at the start, uh, Matt, about the lack of significant exposition where we, where we have such a, a detailed understanding of what the voice is. Um, we, at that point, we've only seen the voice a few times and it's up to the audience to infer that the Bene Gesserit have this ability to be able to command people against their will to do things. And it's only in that scene in the Orthonopter that we actually see what the voice can do. The scene with um, the Reverend Mother on Caladan gives us an indication of that, but it's still not clear at that point. I don't think it's it's in the Orthonopter that we find out that you know you can order people to kill themselves, um, and and they will do it. Um, but it doesn't work on those who are deaf, and so therefore the sign language mm. versus the deaf. Uh, I think it actually triggered um, some things for people. Yeah, they, yeah, they didn't explain that, so it just seemed like a really unnecessary, like, oh, this dude's deaf, and you're like, wait, why? Why does that matter? <laughs> you know what? You know, and but in the book, obviously, it does matter because you can't use the voice on them. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it's the same reason why Jessica has a gag in. Uh, mm-hmm. They know she's been a Jesuit, so uh, they gag her in the plane, but they don't realize yes. that Paul is has been trained in the way. To continue on this conversation about representation, one of the things that really struck me about the way that these characters are represented in uh, in the in the twenty twenty one movie is that they are singular characters who are, I guess, typologies. Uh, they they're archetypes for the group that they represent. Um, you know, Leto Atreides is the archetype of the Atreides. Uh, Jessica is uh, an archetype of the Bene Gesserit. Um, Baron Harkonnen is the archetype of the Harkonnens because he is, uh, you know, brutal and and callous. All Harkonnens are brutal and, cal- and callous, and so I think this act, this sets it up as um, inherently within the material. It sets it up as an individualistic story. Uh, you're accessing all of these these groups through the individuals, and yet in the book uh, it really pivots away from. Um, the individual, the nature of the individual to the nature of the group. Uh, so the Atreides function as a household. Uh, there's that strong emphasis on uh, Leto the Just. And because he is the one who uh, looks after his people, he generates a fanatical um, sort of you know, relationship for his people to him. They'll follow him anywhere. And, and actually, interestingly, that this observation comes from UA in the book. Uh, Yue is the one who observes that he is the one who likes uh, Leto so much because uh, Leto would go out of his way to save his own people. We see that in the movie uh, with that amazing scene as the um, as the sandworm swallows the the harvester whole, which just gave me the old June two um, real time strategy uh, game from like the mid nineties vibes. But in the movie, a lot of that's deprecated. Uh, and you have that introductory monologue from Chani, uh, which really sets it as this 
story about two individuals and and then a host of other individuals. And I find it really interesting. A lot of the posters, I was just having a look at the posters for June. They're all of people. Um, all of the main characters are snapshot individuals. Um, whereas the, the book, um, the book that I've got here, this is the latest cover that they've given, uh, is the planet itself and the sandworm. Uh, it has nothing about Paul. It has nothing about House Atreides. It has nothing about the Baron. It's all about Melange, the spice. Um, it's all about the place. And I think actually that shifts the, the tenor of the 2020 movie from being a battle against the environment, a battle against colonization, um, and it deprecates a lot of these major, major themes, uh, some of which come out in that representation. And it brings it to sort of almost a coming of age story. Um, it becomes about Paul coming of age as an individual um, in relationship with others, yes, but it's about uh, he, he stands in for the collective uh, and, and has that coming of age uh, on Arrakis uh, under the influence of the spice, which is there in the book, to be fair. Uh, the messianic themes are writ large. Uh, you, know, you don't get the, to the second book where it's uh, called Jude Messiah uh, for nothing. <laughs> but I think just introducing it with Chani and introducing it in this, in this context it really brings out that individualistic zeitgeist um, of our age. I think that's actually really helpful because I think one of the difficulties I found in reading the book was that it was so expansive and it was hard to locate, you know, these individual characters and where they belong because it really wasn't primarily about them. It was about this foreign otherworldly planet and spice and about the theme, the, these themes. And so I wonder if that was, an intentional choice to make the, the this movie a bit more character focused uh, to bring to bring the audience along to identify with these people, which is a lot easier to do than identify with a planet they've never been to or even never heard of in many cases. And yet, a planet which looks so familiar because of the representation. I mean, Arrakis looks like the Middle East the visuals of the middle east after our what 20 odd year war war that we've engaged in have been splashed all over our tv screens the the imagery is so familiar yeah I, I, i'm not really sure that a, at least a u.s audience would be able to handle uh a movie that put its themes in the foreground as like the main <laughs> characters versus the actual individual characters like I, i'm i'm you know, going back to like the movie adapts itself to uh, certain tropes that ground it and related to the audience watching it. So, so yes, it is probably an, an intentional choice since, especially since uh, I, I'm trying to think of movies that do put their themes and messages ahead of their characters and how bad a lot of them are. Uh, the day after tomorrow comes to mind in terms of like what happens when you put this like on the nose environment good humans must treat it well uh theme right in the front <laughs> and how it, it tends not to make for a, or or like even like something like avatar where it's like environment good military bad you know what i mean <laughs> but it gets made fun of for doing that exact same thing <laughs> sure and i mean but one of the tropes that um you know that's not ethnic but it's still there is messiah 
So, I mean, we still have to grapple with the idea that that Paul is this prophesied Messiah whose identity intersects with, you know, different worlds, not just not just the Fremen who have prophecies about um, the Lisan Al Gaib, um, but the Bene Gesserit have have been doing these, you know, centuries long efforts to produce the Kwisatz Heiderach, and um, but you know we um, unavoidably as a Western audience um, will will map on whatever whatever baggage that we have of prophesied messiahs and bring that back onto the text not the text well first yes the text but then also of course the film and uh i i i i wonder you know what the struggle is in in sort of making that have its own unique voice without sort of being so encumbered by some of those themes um partly i think of the last temptation of jesus the film um where uh willem defoe becomes sort of this you know, sort of this weary Messiah that's wary of sort of the expectations placed on him. That tends to be um, one of the big themes of sort of these uh, Jesus portrayals. I mean, uh, John Dunn mentioned Jesus Christ Superstar, where um, there's a reluctance to to take on the mantle of of Messiah. And that's certainly the case with Paul Atreides in this film as well. The Lynch book, excuse me, in the Lynch version, again, this is one of those things that I feel like gets glossed over that this version did better was to show you almost the the constructed nature of Paul's messiahship like because yeah, there's that yeah. line from the Bene Gesserit that says you know we've done what we can to lay the groundwork there's been this propaganda ca- campaign that prepares the right. Fremen to accept Paul as messiah right and you know his mother is trying to turn him into the messiah the bennett jesserit have done like i just said the propaganda campaign to have him accepted as the messiah so there's this really weird um constructed nature to his messiahship that in this movie he wrestles with and it's like you're turning me into someone where uh you're turning me into a symbol where people will become fanatics in my name right and so he wrestles with the acceptance of that messiahship uh, which I felt like that messiahship in general was kind of ambiguous in, ter- in terms of how it's shown in the movie. I don't know if it's uh, Chris with a C. I'm not sure if you can speak to how the book portrays it, but that was something I walked away with was that constructive nature of the messiahship. Yeah, absolutely. The, the missionary productiva, uh, which is the sort of the propaganda arm of the Bene Gesserit, is uh, so strong in the book. Uh, they they're the ones who have seeded. Uh, the Lisan al Gaib construct on Arrakis over, you know, hundreds of years is what they say, and so they've been waiting for centuries for this the Lisan al Gaib, uh, and I think that's it's really it is really seen very well in the movie. I mean, uh, where Shut Up Mapes uh, presents Lady Jessica with the Chris knife, uh, although bizarrely does not blood it um, because she takes it out of the sheath and it returns it without blood being spilled. Uh, but that's just a minor thing. So it's, it's mainly bizarre because at the end of the movie, you, you're trying to figure out why everyone's blooding their knives before the, you know, uh, when they're sheathing the Chris knives. Um, anyway, that's another matter entirely, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it, they've done a far better job of explaining the, 
projection of prophecy there and the constructed nature of that. And yet there's two levels there. One is that the um, Arakeen, so the, the Fremen and those on Arrakis, uh, because there are other cultures on Arrakis apart from the Fremen, have that um, prophecy of the Nisan Agaib, but the Bene Gesserit themselves have the, their own prophecy of the Kwisatz Haderach, uh, which they are following. And I actually thought that the movie did a worse job of highlighting that secondary, the, the Kwisatz Haderach um, construct. Uh, it was with only with the creepy voiceovers, uh, the creepy memory, memory voiceover, whatever it is from the Reverend Mother in the final scenes that you find out um, a little bit more on that. Uh, but you've got that intersection of the two, uh, which is, I, I think it's, it's the, that, yeah, is he really the Messiah? Is he, and, and they use the term, the one, uh, can you, can anyone in sci-fi movies ever use the term, the one anymore? I mean, that's just, it's, it just unlocks that, that key just unlocks messianic ideas uh, if for, for a movie going audience. You know, the, the book also though, in like, I mean, there is there is undoubtedly the the planted nature and the constructed nature of of Messiah, but um, it 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 it's still invested with an authority that that feels out with both in the book, and I think in some sense the movie as well because it takes it takes Paul's dream seriously, and it takes the 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 fulfillment of them on some level to be um forth telling of what's to come and so grants paul um you know messianic powers like like neo like uh like t'challa timothy chalamet and t'challa we can call them both t'challa they're both messianic figures <laughs> so you know i don't think that denis Villeneuve's dune gets um uh gets away from um, sort of the mystique of Messiah, even even though they 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 sort of properly located in in sort of the breeding project and the propaganda project. Well, and what's interesting even about Paul's dreams and you know which which serve as these prophecies, I, I was again talking to the friends of mine who saw it, was that those prophecies aren't without need of interpretation, right? They're not. They're not. Uh, there is a sort of mediation and interpretation that happens where they're not straightforward. They do still require, you know, some sort of sub subjective uh, interpretation. They aren't, it's not like you see the dream and know exactly what it means. And this is exactly how it's going to happen. I mean, again, having not read the book, I was, you know, surprised when Paul, um, like there was that moment where, you know, that scene happens where it's like, ah, Paul Atreides. Rise, quit that hatterack, or however you say the the term, right? And I was like, wait, is is this how he wins and becomes friends with this guy that we saw in the prophecy? Is he about to stab himself? You know what I mean? Like, is that is that about to be what happens? Because like, uh, just because I'm you know unfamiliar with some of the lore, but it did kind of highlight for me that that those prophecies are still not straightforward. They're still interpreted, even if they are as the opening line says, uh, messages from the deep. Yeah, even in the book, the, the um, dreams that he has aren't overly clear. Uh, he says a couple of times that you know, 
Um, he's referred to as Usul. Uh, is the planet called Usul? Is he called Usul? Is someone called Usul? Uh, how does this actually work? And that confusion regarding uh, the the, prop, the the prophecy, or actually what it, what his dreams are, strike me not so much as prophetic or prescience, as much as future memory. Um, it, they're the the memory of things that are to come. Um, it seems to be how they're, they're portrayed a bit more. And, and I wonder if part of that uh, relates then back to Denis Villeneuve's portrayal of memory in Blade Runner 2049, where he, the replicants, spoiler alert for a movie that came out four years ago, uh, the replicants have a memory that's implanted in them. Um, it's not their own. And so therefore they can't remember it particularly clearly, but they think it is their own. Um, and so it, it strikes me that he's trying to do the same thing here. Like there is a memory of something which he uh, thinks he knows, but he, he, he can see the branching paths. And so therefore he doesn't quite see it so clearly. And, and as he says to the Reverend mother, you know, she asks him, do, do things happen exactly as you dream them? He says, not quite or not all the time. Yeah, so there's a Marvel universe, and now there's a Denis Villeneuve universe that <laughs> that we've got a the cross reference uh, because the Blade Runner memory um, aspect is is very interesting, and it it does it does sort of put the finger on is this is it future is it past and that's actually kind of a David Lynch reference. <laughs> um, I do know that the book does wrestle with the fact of whether Paul sees the future or whether it's a changeable future, the nature of um, his visions, you know, whether they're, um, they're sort of warnings of, of a darker future that's to be avoided. Um, and, and yet, more, more often than not, Paul often, at least in, in, as in his experience of it, uh, is is registering these as 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 visions that he eventually comes to see, at, you know, as the as the story progresses, as as events unfold, you know, the turn to to consider that from a different perspective as memory, I think, is is wholly different. Also, very fascinating, and uh, I wonder I wonder how much of of the current Dune. Um, explores that and will continue to develop that well matt is there a uh, dune proposal for the theology and pop culture series not yet i think chris porter should uh make that proposal looking for takers man i'll i'll, I'll send you something matt all right I'll, I'll be waiting for it sure so just to continue what chris was saying i think the that nature of memory and future memory versus past memory is actually really critical to the 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 book's description of the Kwisatz Haderach um, in that the, the Kwisatz Haderach is the one who uh, can fold memory together. They can reach down into both um, past and future. And interestingly, um, which brings us to something which isn't really explored in the movie, uh, but into male and female. Um, the Bene Gesserit have the ability to have some form of prescience because they can see the future of the future of their femaleness, if you like, uh, which is why they're called the weirding way they're called the witches they 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 have that ability to be able to see things that are going to happen to them but the the kwisatz haderach can see both male and female um and and it it actually becomes a major plot point in the in part two what will effectively be part two of the book um is that the 
that nature of both past and uh, past memory and future memory or prescience uh, is becomes this significant part of what's going on uh, for Paul as uh, Muadib rather than Paul Atreides. So, yeah, I I, I really think uh, Denis Villeneuve has done a really good job of leaving it very open to that to the to what does future memory actually look like. Can you say any more about that future memory stuff? Because like my mind automatically is going to like either some sort of Platonism or some sort of like uh, Augustinian eternal now that people in time have access to. Like, can you talk a little bit more about that future memory thing? Because that is fascinating. I think, yeah, we, we're yeah. all we're all intrigued. Yeah. So so in the book, um, it's not, it doesn't seem to be that it's particularly it's not prophecy in, as in I can see the, he can see the future, but he can see the ripples of what has happened, what will happen in the future, um, and so you see that uh, occurring in the fight scene in twenty twenty one at the end, where you see the snippets of what has of the possibilities of what will occur, and it's only at the point that they have occurred that he can remember what actually occurred, if you like. Uh, so the, he has a, a series of memories, if you like, um, a series of branching paths down which he could, he walks. Uh, and therefore when he, uh, spoiler alert, when he kills Jamis, he remembers the, the memories of the prophecies that have led to him killing Jamis, not the memories of the prophecies of the prescience that led to him dying uh, because you see uh, in, at many points that the, the, the prescience or the future memories are of actually of Paul being killed himself. Um, and in contrast, the outcome is that he kills Jamis, which actually is stunningly similar to how the book describes it with a, the knife swap and, and the stabbing up the, up the back. Uh, but and I've just really appreciated that bit of cinematography and, and uh, action choreography, but that's that nature of memory is not just something that was, uh, that is a single linear path to go down, but there are multiple branches and you can only just determine what, what will happen by what already has happened. But in the books, this comes out quite strongly in um, Paul drinking the water of life because he doesn't see Gurney Halleck's attack on Jessica. Spoiler, spoiler on spoiler on spoiler, Gurney Halleck <laughs> doesn't die. Gurney Halleck becomes a smuggler. Um, they reunite with the Atreides, Paul and Jessica, um, but Gurney tries to kill Jessica because he believes that she is the, the traitor uh, that who betrayed uh, Duke Leto, um, which is all set up, and none of that is in the movie whatsoever. So it's all set up in the, um, in the book, but is ignored by the movie. The bizarre thing that is that they never, so in the tent in the book, Jess, Lady Jessica finds out that um, her patronage, her, her father is Baron Harkonnen. So she is Lady Jessica Harkonnen. That's why she's ordered to produce a daughter for the Atreides who can marry the daughter of Fade Harkonnen. Uh, Harkonnen does reference uh, Leto as cousin which you're supposed to go, where is that coming from? So, I mean, I, I'm not sure that that is anything apart from um, feudal custom. Yeah, um, no, you might be right. But I, I, I took that as like sort of a gesture towards there's, there's, more, there's more to how these houses are connected. 
but I was looking for the seeds being planted of, you know, who did this, how, how could this happen? And it just, you know, I, you know, they, they, I didn't see any seeds at all for that, which is interesting. Yeah. I don't remember any of this from the book. So, <laughs> so which I think what I think that actually speaks to is that other than my poor memory uh, is that the film, I, I think it does stand really well on its own for, uh, for an audience that, um, was never engaged at all with Dune. Um, I mean, as a film, I mean, the cinematography is, I think, worth it just just for that alone. Sure, Forget sure. the story. The cinematography is great. I think what we you kind of mentioned, someone mentioned it earlier about you know none of us any or none of us any longer are enamored with space travel or like a spaceship or something. But I found all of the thing every 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 you know. Uh, spaceship i was like this is the coolest thing i have ever seen this is so cool and all all the you know world building and stuff i thought it did a really good job and so i i do hope that a lot of the stuff that i have conveniently forgotten in the books will come back in the second film maybe it's a not bad memory it's just future memory you'll, exactly. you'll only <laughs> exactly. you'll only realize later brandon that um, that you've yeah. remembered all along um, yeah just to echo the point um, I mean, the, the, the big thing that I, I go to see a movie for is, is what you call world building. It's just this idea of being able to see the world that gets created through, uh, through lenses, um, through sets. And it's, I think, universally, everybody, whether they like the storytelling or they like the movie, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of the film, of course, for me on my part. But the, the, just just the ability to be transported to um you know to the space that the film creates was uh, i think wonderful i think the denny villeneuve film does that exceptionally well but i do want to say that the david lynch set design is actually pretty masterful especially for the early 80s it was shot in mexico city i believe and a, a lot of the kind of practical design stuff i just thought was actually quite great not as good as blade runner i think blade runner is kind of like the pinnacle of that kind of set design and just gorgeous design i think lynch's dune is worth saying it was you know it was a good that's probably the, maybe the strongest point of the of the lynch film <laughs> maybe that and sting uh making, <laughs> making his appearance as well Sting um, with wings <laughs> One of the th interesting f things for the um, Villeneuve uh, set design is that I felt a bunch of it actually drew from the Hodorowski uh, sketches. So, so Hodorowski um, was the first attempt at making a Dune film, and I think his screenplay was estimated for about twelve to fourteen hours long, and he had all sorts of amazing, amazing. Uh, people on it like HR Geiger, Mick Jagger. so Guy Mick Jagger, but especially Geiger's visuals. Uh, so Geiger was doing a lot of the set design, and so much of the Dune set design from Jodorowsky became part of Alien, and it really bled across into that. Uh, but even the um, the Harkonnen Palace on Gierdi Prime uh, looks like the Jodorowsky Geiger Palace. I thought it was a really neat throwback. And even the Hunter Seeker in 2021 looks like a piece of Geiger technology. It has that angular sort of shape to it with organic features. 
sort of trailing off it. And it, it, it is just a, a wonderful piece of um, cinematography and set, set design. I could ramble on about the orthonopters and the the nature of the um, the carryalls and the spice harvesters for hours, hours long. You were speaking about real-time strategy. When I saw the spice harvesters, I was thinking about the Tiberian harvesters in uh, Command and Conquer. Yeah, so the, the, so the Tiberian harvesters in Command and Conquer are... Uh, uh, based off Dune Spice Harvesters. So uh, Westwood Studios made Dune 2, which was a um, real-time strategy game based on the Dune universe. Uh, And you you had to harvest harvest spice and the sandworms would come up and try and eat your harvesters. And so you had to get your carryalls to come over and get get your harvester and pick it up and move it somewhere else before the sandworm would get it. Um, And all of that mechanic became Command & Conquer. Can we confirm if Tremors is part of the Dune universe? Can neither confirm nor deny, John. I mean, if Dune takes place in the year 10,000 and Tremors takes place, I think, in the 80s, um, and if we assume Arrakis is just future Earth that has become a desert and has developed psychedelic spice out of its sand, Evolutionary history, baby sandworms in tremors eventually grow into massive sandworms. Boom. So how do we link in Beetlejuice into this? Uh, Because surely the Beetlejuice worms are shakalud. What is going to happen now is there's going to be a what-if series for Dune talking about alternative universes, one in which the sandworms were more of a spiritual afterlife creature. Star Wars in Empire where the um, space slug comes out of the of the moon rock that's another shy hulud it has to be yeah uh, and the emperor has to be the patisar emperor surely yeah yeah and even the 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 creature that that swallows boba fett i mean it's they're they're all well yeah. exactly and david lynch was supposed to do return of the jedi but he did <laughs> Dune instead we so go. we've we've gone full circle here uh well this has been a lot of fun thank you so much matt for for joining us and just enjoy being able to chat about a, a film and uh look forward to doing more of that i know next week we'll have squid game for example so it's just been a lot of fun thanks for joining us thanks for having me